From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later on tonight, we're going to dabble with the supernatural. Here's what's happening. An intense tropical storm, Adelia, is strengthening quickly as it churns toward Florida. Could become a dangerous Category 3 storm as it approaches the coast with a mix of heavy rains, high winds, damaging storm surges at least 12 feet high right now. Adelia expected to intensify into a hurricane and make landfall on Wednesday morning near the Big Bend of Florida as a dangerous major hurricane. We'll keep our eyes on it. If the intensity keeps up tomorrow, we just may do our intention experiment and see if we can slow that thing down. Hawaiian officials have attributed the cause of the catastrophic wildfires to alleged failures from the state's main power utility company and down power lines this week. In a lawsuit, the government of Maui County, Hawaii, has alleged that Hawaiian Electric Company and its subsidiaries failed to properly power down live electrical equipment amid a red flag windstorm earlier this month. Due to this failure, downed power lines operated by the utility company sparked a series of deadly fires on the island, according to the lawsuit. To date, 114 people have died. They're still searching for hundreds of others. Content management and hosting outfit WordPress wants to sell you some legacy technology, a domain name and website It will keep alive for 100 years for $38,000. Our expert on the Internet, Lauren Weinstein, with us. What a deal, right, Lauren? Yeah, such a deal. So so let's start with what is WordPress, right? Uh, WordPress is a content management system. It's software that can be used to build and operate websites. In fact, something over 40% of all websites around the world use WordPress one way or another, so over 800 million sites. And it's been around a long time, relatively. It was initially released about 20 years ago, and there are different ways to use it. Uh, You can install their free software version on your own hardware or on a cloud server that you rent, or you can pay WordPress itself to host the whole thing for a typical monthly-type fee up, up till now. Now, what's happened, though, is that WordPress, or rather more officially their firm, which is called Automatic, Inc., and that's Automatic with two Ts in the Matic, by the way, just made a somewhat controversial announcement, as you said, in that they're offering to provide 100 years of web hosting for $38,000. And the idea apparently is that they think that this might be attractive to people who want to lock in, so to speak, their legacy, so that it would continue to be online no matter what. Now, there are a number of technical reasons why many observers consider this to be a rather bizarre and perhaps laughable concept, and an easy way to think about it, perhaps, is to consider what the Internet and web looked like 100 years ago, so in 1923. Obviously, there was no Internet in 1923. This was before the era of Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, before the 1929 Wall Street crash, 16 years before the release of the classic Wizard of Oz movie. For that matter, the fundamental changes on the Internet in just the last 30 years are very dramatic in many ways. So this all leads to the obvious question. A hundred years from now, or perhaps much sooner, will the Internet and web look anything like they do now? Hosts, sites, names, browsers, interfaces, absolutely everything related to this technology and how it's accessed and used is likely to be different in ways we can't even imagine now. So by rough analogy, if just before the invention of the automobile, 
someone offered you the opportunity to pay a significant fee for 100 years' worth of buggy whips, it probably wouldn't have been a particularly good deal going forward. So basically, assuming that there's still a technological civilization alive on this planet 100 years from now, it's probably better just to pay for your web hosting in increments much smaller than a century's worth, because one thing we know for sure about the tech world 100 years from now is that it will look a lot different than it does today. Crazy times. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate that. Archaeologists working in the northern highlands of Peru at a site on Earth, a tomb estimated to be 3,000 years old and believed to have honored an elite religious leader. Reuters has reported that archaeologists called the discovery priest of Paco Pampa, named after the archaeological zone where the tomb was uncovered. The tomb was covered with six layers of ash mixed with black earth and was decorated with ceramic bowls. 3,000 years old. Amazing. The wonderment of the Milky Way galaxy. Let's check in with Stephen Cates, Dr. Sky. Stephen, what do you have for us this week? George, we're jam-packed with information, but we continue to talk about eclipses. As we know, they come and go, but many have never experienced the beauty of a solar eclipse of any type, whether it be partial, annular, or total. But coming closer to home would be, as we mentioned last week, the October 14th annular solar eclipse, visible from Oregon to the Midwest and Southeast U.S., it's a dry run, George, with the big one, the total solar eclipse, coming next year, April 8th, 2024. But for some in the USA, they will experience up to four minutes and 26 seconds of the shadow of the moon. But plan now, as we've talked about, to experience this. But more details, George, on the weather predictions for this particular region or where best you can see it. Here are some of the best locations with the maximum totality and the highest percentage of clear weather. Starting off in Eagle Pass, Texas. Four minutes and 26 seconds of totality with a 59% chance of seeing it. Herville, Texas, Colleen, and Dallas all get within four minutes or slightly less with 58 to 55% of a probability of clear skies. But things drop off rapidly the farther north you go. Indianapolis, Indiana, three minutes and 51 seconds with a 41% chance of clear skies. Cleveland, Ohio, and Buffalo, New York, the, the percentage moves down into the low to mid-30s and less as you go up higher into the northern parts of the United States. So simply, George, Texas is really ground zero for the best weather predictions, but more on this as we count down these eclipses throughout the year. We move out into deep space. What is the Hubble tension? Well, there's now disagreement on just how fast the universe's expansion, and it's expanding. It's called the Hubble tension. The Hubble constant, George, is a measure of just how fast galaxies are moving away at speeds proportional to their distance. The old value was 311 miles per second for every megaparsec. What's that? Every 3.26 million light years. Now the value of expansion lines between 42 miles per second. And a new solution with data from the incredible James Webb Telescope talks of upwards of 45 miles per second per megaparsec. Sounds confusing? Well, whatever's causing the expansion of the universe to go faster is one of the greatest mysteries of all time. Well, if anybody's looking for a unique car, George, I got on Craigslist, of all places, for Dallas, Texas. And I came across a nice 1995 Z28 Camaro convertible in a beautiful quasar blue with leather seats and a nice LT1 engine with only 68,000 miles. But here's the scoop. It's one of the surviving vehicles of the first American in space, astronaut legend Admiral Alan Shepard. And it comes with all kinds of documentations 
as he launched into space in his suborbital flight on the Redstone rocket back on May 5th, 1961. Here we go with the price. It's selling for a mere $250,000. But if you buy it and you don't like it, guess what you could do? You might use that money, George, because it's about the same amount of money to do a similar suborbital flight like the one that Alan Shepard did, like they're doing on Blue Origin and many other space companies. Wrap it up with the live sky. How about this, George? The most magnificent full moon of the entire year is just a few days away. It's the full blue supermoon. Look in the skies, August 30th, 9.35 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Adjust your time across the nation and around the world. The closest of the year, 221,942 miles away. Well, equally important, the planet Saturn rising in the southeast at sunset. Telescopes show the rings. And a new comet called Comet Nishimura. It may actually be binocular bright in the early morning skies in September. We always say, what? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Emails, we love them, Show at gmail.com, and theskylive.com for greater detail and information. Simply, I'm your navigator on the highway to the heavens. Lots of exciting things to look at. Don't miss that beautiful blue supermoon. Dr. Sky, how cool would it be to own Alan Shepard's car? That would be the coolest thing, George, and maybe by talking about it, maybe somebody's going to lay down the big bucks. But you get all the documentation. That would just be unbelievable. I'd put that in a vacuum chamber and never drive it. That's how important that would be to me. Take, take it to the moon. Thank you, Dr. Sky. In a moment, Bobby Eckhart back with us. His latest work, Arc Storm. It's the other big one. He's next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Nori with you. We've got a great series of programs for you this week. A little program note for you, too. We will be live Labor Day Monday night next week. So make sure you're part of the program after your festivities. Born and raised in Tennessee, Bobby Eckhart received his bachelor's degree with a dual major in economics and political science. He not only understands how the economy works, but the profound effects politically has on the economy as well. After completing his undergraduate degree at Tennessee in just three years, he entered the dual degree program, obtaining a law degree combined with an MBA at the young age of 23. Bobby uses disaster and survival fiction as a way to explore how people can survive a catastrophic event and still find a reason to go on living happily. Bobby is a retired attorney and now a full-time author. He has more than 60 novels available on Amazon. His latest book that we're talking about tonight is called Ark Storm, a disaster thriller. And Bobby, welcome back. Hey, George, it's good to be with you again. I am sitting right atop the new Madrid Fault. You wrote that book in 2020. No rumbling yeah. shed. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good thing. If you see the Mississippi River flowing backwards, you know there's trouble. Absolutely. Give us an overview of Arc Storm, and then we'll get into mass extinctions. Well, it, Arc Storms are, are something that happen in nature. Um, you know, as you know, I write plausible science fiction. And this past winter in California, there's been a lot of conversation about these atmospheric rivers, which caused so much flooding and, and, and added uh, a lot of water to the barren reservoirs throughout the state. And people applauded that. But what they don't know is that in history, recent history, as, as early as 1862, there were a series of atmospheric rivers so powerful that they actually flooded the entire central valley of California from Sacramento to the northern part of Los Angeles County, 300 miles long and, and 40 to 60 miles wide in places, and that that water stayed in the valley 
for almost a year before it eventually started to evaporate and dissipate. And what I wanted to write in ArcStorm is, is showing them what scientists call the other big one or the ArcStorm scenario. And, you know, people have asked me, well, does the word Arc uh, you know, relate to Noah's Ark, and I guess it is kind of interesting that you would think that because the net result of an Ark storm is a massive flood, a thousand-year flood event, but the AR stands for Atmospheric River, and the K stands for thousand-year flood event. And so what they experienced back in the winter in California is nothing compared to what happened in 1862 when the entire state was flooded and a new lake was created is a result of all of this rainfall and snow melt. Your cover sends shivers down my spine, Bobby, for a lot of people I'll describe it. It shows the Hollywood sign, which generally is way up there in the hillsides, almost submerged with water. That's a lot of water, Bobby. Well, you know, I as you mentioned, I've written over 60 novels, and I challenge my wife, Danny, every time to come up with a cover that explains to the reader visually what this story was about. And she came up with this monstrous-looking uh, storm coming ashore, and that's exactly what it would be like, because an arc storm is very much like a hurricane that doesn't end for six to eight weeks. It's a nonstop, continuous deluge of rainfall. And then it oftentimes or always happens in mid-December through late February, which then creates mountain snows. And these mountain snows eventually melt, adding to the amount of water in the valley. And everything written in the Ark Storm uh, novel is based upon what happened in 1862, and I just apply it to modern times. And Bobby, as we talk, a tropical storm is heading towards Florida, which they say could hit as a Category 3 hurricane, Idalia. That's not good news. No, it's not, in, in, especially for people in coastal regions. But I have to say, having lived in Florida for much of my life, we see these hurricanes all the time. And when you're in the path, it's very frightening. But for those in, in other parts of the country who don't experience these, these types of storms, they really can't relate to them. But you have to imagine a, a Category 5 uh, like Andrew was 30 years ago and yeah, like huge. experienced uh, uh, with Katrina, and that that storm doesn't stop. It doesn't stop for weeks upon weeks, and that's what happened in California in 1862. Tell us your thoughts about a mass extinction event. What uh, What is that to you? Well, the in the history of the world, which is, you know, of course, billions of years, the, the planet has ended five times. It's been fried, it's been frozen, it's been gassed with poison, it's smothered with ash, uh, bombarded from space with asteroids and, uh, you know, comets. And in history, these things have occurred, and they can obviously happen again. Now, as we go through our everyday lives, we don't think about the fact that there are near-Earth objects out there that are sometimes not discovered till the last minute or even after they've already flown by our planet. That's right. That had they made a direct impact, we could have another uh, situation like when the dinosaurs were uh, you know, forced into extinction. And then there are the massive supervolcanoes that, that you and I talked about a few years ago in relation to New Madrid. All of these these extinction-level events 
have occurred as part of the formation of our planet. And our civilization is here only because these extinction levels have not yet occurred during a modern time. But that's not to say that it can't. I have a saying that civilization exists by geologic consent, subject to change without notice. And you just never know when the time is going to be for a massive uh, catastrophic event like I write about. It's truly something else. How realistic is the possibility of another mass extinction? Well, the sometimes these things take thousands of years. Um, the Ice Age, for example, uh, took many thousands or possibly millions of years. You know, uh, we live in a blink of an eye in terms of the lifespan of, of our planet. And we have to understand that we can't, it's hard to relate to these things when we're on this earth for, you know, maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and it takes hundreds of thousands of years of time between, say, the last time the uh, Yellowstone supervolcano erupted and, and, and the present day. But that's not to say it can't happen. So you look at likelihood based upon percentages and scientific uh, uh, data, um, but they can certainly occur and will occur again. The question is, you know, where will we as, as mankind be in our, uh, you know, relationship and to the earth? And I, I think that scientists think about these things, futurists in particular think about these things. And it's just something that I want readers and, and your listeners to be aware of, that you don't need to go through life thinking that there's going to be an extinction-level event tomorrow, but there can certainly be the precursors taking place that could have a devastating effect on all of our lives. What do you think could be a worst-case scenario, Bobby? Well, for me, it's probably the the possibility of a near-Earth object uh, colliding with the planet. I wrote a trilogy called the Asteroid Trilogy, and when I got into the, the research and the science for that series of novels, I realized how much we miss, even though so many thousands of eyes, not only human, but you know, computerized and these massive telescopes around the country and the world, miss these near-Earth objects because you're looking at a dead rock or you're looking for a dead rock, right. some of which are bigger than others. And it's only when the sun happens to illuminate that rock do these you know telescopes see it and if they miss it then you have a crater the size of, of the gulf of mexico occurring and it and it's uh lights out so to speak truly remarkable that con- that concerns me and then as you and i've discussed before the the massive solar flare that that is a, is a regular thing coming from the sun the sun gets angry um Superheated plasma gets hurled through space, and then you have something similar to what they call the Carrington event from the late 1800s that literally caught telegraph wires and the the headsets of the operators on fire. And if something like that hit uh, our modern society today, every computer, every telephone, our cell phones, all of would be rendered useless. Let's talk a little bit more about that, Bobby, when we come back in a moment. Uh, we have been championing to protect and insulate our power grid from both an EMP attack and a solar flare from the sun, both are re- real, real possibilities. 
So we need to be careful about that. But we'll talk more with Bobby Eckhart. His latest book is called Ark Storm. It's an amazing book. And we'll tell you more about his websites when we come back. We'll take your calls with Bobby next hour. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Bobby Eckhart with us. Bobby, where's your book available? Is it on Amazon bookstores? Uh, yes, it is. On uh, They can go to my website, bobbyacart.com, and see everything that I've written. But also, if you type my name into the Amazon search engine, all of the books will come up. And uh, they come, I write in, um, e- produce e-books. I produce uh, paperbacks, uh, jacketed hardcovers, and also audio books. I know a lot of your listeners are truckers, and I appreciate everything they do. Um, and in fact, I wanted to tell you that if they would email me uh, at uh, bobbyacart at gmail.com, if they'll pick out an audio book that they like, uh, I'll provide them a code for Audible and so they can listen to it for free. Oh, that's great. And a lot of visually impaired people, too, love yes, these audio books, to be that's sure. Right. You've got a full social network platform, and we've got your website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Bobby, you mentioned the 1859 Carrington event, which was a major X-flare from the sun, which killed the uh, wireless systems that we had available at the time, which was the Western Union, the Telegraph, and things like that. If it happened today, we're up a creek, aren't we? Well, the, our our wiring is not prepared for the massive uh, energy burst that would enter into our atmosphere. And then once it hits our atmosphere, the it, atmosphere works like a protective shield. And the reason you see these beautiful aurora uh, near the North Pole, you know, the, the hues of greens and blues and purples, sometimes oranges, is because our atmosphere is weakest at the poles. So when these massive solar flares and, and all of this plasma hurtles through space and hits the planet, then it enters into our atmosphere through the North Poles and creates the aurora. And sometimes when they're extremely strong, You'll see uh, uh, weather watchers and space watchers say we could see aurora as far south as, uh, you know, the mid-latitudes of the United States. Um, And some people get excited by that. I, on the other hand, think I know what this could do to our way of life. Because when we built all of our electrical grid, and, and everything is based upon computers nowadays, the intricate wiring, the, the fine uh, components of all of these uh, uh, electronic devices are not capable of withstanding the pulse of energy that would literally fry them uh, and, and, and just ruin them. And it's a, it's a naturally occurring event. It happens all of the time. In 2012, we barely dodged a solar flare nearly as strong as the Carrington event of 1859 by only seven or eight days. Jeez. So if the Earth had been in a certain location as it revolves around the sun, we would have taken a direct hit. And we're wholly unprepared for this. Uh, Back in the 90s, Congressman Newt Gingrich, then Speaker of the House, led a commission called the EMP Commission, and laid all the science out for Congress and said, we need to do something to protect our uh, power grid from this type of event. And in typical government fashion, they found other things to spend their money on. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's something that they're aware of in Washington, but it's also something that they have done precious little to protect us from. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's going to happen. 
Well, absolutely. And then to take it one step further, people ask me all the time, well, there's these natural occurring events like solar flares and then, of course, supervolcanoes, arc storms, et cetera. But then there are man-made events as well. And we have the nuclear capability to detonate a, a nuclear device, an electromagnetic pulse weapon, EMP, over the central part of the United States, and sadly, St. Louis is always the one that's given as the example, and I hate to do yeah, that. Ground zero. <laughs> it's ground zero for, for a targeted EMP. And then when this EMP is detonated, you know, three, 400 miles above the surface of the planet, it spreads out, and, and then these, these powerful energy particles will then hit everything from our cars to, well, you know, everything we've discussed. So uh, an EMP burst can be naturally occurring from, from the sun, or it can be from some of our adversaries capable of detonating a nuclear weapon um, anywhere above the United States, and, and the list is long from Russia to China to North Korea, uh, India and Pakistan. Everybody has this capability now. It's an, and it, Iran is developing nuclear weapons, and it's a frightening thought when you realize how many people don't like us very much and they possess these powerful weapons that we may or may not be able to defend ourselves against. You had mentioned earlier about the mass extinction events of uh, asteroids from space. And I'm not so sure the right thing to do is to blow them up because you well, create a shotgun effect, don't you? It, it's a, you're exactly right. There are a number of ways to deal with these, but none of them are very good. The first thought is, well, we have powerful nuclear devices, and let's just hit it with everything we've got. But then instead of having one uh, near-Earth object approaching the planet, you have hundreds, if not thousands. Um, the the theory is is that many times um, they call them neos neo these neos burn up in the atmosphere because they're small uh, the larger ones that make impact have a, a, a profound effect I mean there are craters like the one in Arizona that that's many miles wide and of course the Gulf of Mexico is created by one um, but all you have to do is look to the moon and and look at all the pock marks in the moon and realize that that satellite of Earth is a magnet for these near-Earth objects. And if you, if you destroy one, you're going to have thousands to deal with. Uh, another option is what they call diverting, and this is what I wrote about in the Asteroid Trilogy. It, you hit the asteroid hard enough not to destroy it, but to just move it off its path. And it takes some calculations in order to do that, and you have to hit it hard enough so that the Earth's natural, um, you know, magnetic pull doesn't draw it back towards you. And, and they're aware of this at NASA. They, they have practiced it most recently in the last couple of years by sending a satellite through space and actually made impact on a, um, a near-Earth object. It, it wasn't designed to divert it. It was just simply to see if they were capable of doing it. So they're aware of the problem, and, you know, so far, knock on wood, there are no NEOs, near-Earth objects, that are scheduled to hit for 100 years that we know of. And that goes back to the problem. Oftentimes, these NEOs are missed by our best technology, our best uh, uh, scientific minds that have the ability to see into space, 
and we don't know that they passed this until they've gone or they've they've already done their flyby. Bobby, earlier this year, a 7.8 earthquake magnitude uh, hit in Turkey, killed 51,000 people. It was horrible. I mean, uh, how deadly are these for mass extinction events? Well, it, a mass extinction would probably require something greater than an earthquake. Um, the the worst case scenario in an earthquake is is what we've seen, especially in Southeast Asia, when it's an underwater quake. Um, there's first off, you have no warning of an earthquake. I mean, maybe minutes if you're lucky. Uh, seismic precursors, seismic activity leading up to a larger quake uh, might lead uh, seismologists to say, "Hey, we've got something coming," but. It's not like a hurricane that you see forming in the Gulf and, and heading towards the coast. And it's it's even tornadic activity in the Midwest. You know, you, you have uh, all kinds of radars that you watch and you identify hook echoes, et cetera. But with earthquakes, they just happen. And if it happens underwater, there's a tsunami associated with it. And then you have a very large catastrophe killing tens of thousands. An extinction-level event is something that would take out many millions, if not billions, of people on the planet. Um, and those those usually involve something that creates a nuclear winter of atmosphere, uh, whether it be a, a supervolcano like Yellowstone erupting or um, uh, re- even a regional nuclear war between countries like Pakistan and India, where they decided to shoot at each other. Once all of that uh, material enters the atmosphere, it cools the temperatures and, and, and causes food disruptions. And I know I got a little bit off track there, but the, the earthquake is more of a regional type of mm-hmm. impact as opposed to a, an extinction level, which is more of a, an entire planet impact. About two and a half years ago, you and I were talking about uh, your book, New Madrid Earthquake, about the New Madrid Fault, which cuts right through St. Louis. Why did you key in on the New Madrid Fault? Well, San Andreas is probably the best known, and Hollywood can be thanked for that. That Every movie that you ever see about a, an earthquake always involves the San Andreas Fault. And, and it's significant because of its location at, at, where the plates meet along the coast of California. And it's in a very highly populated area from you know, San Francisco on down. But one of the most the severe potential earthquakes that we could have in this country is along the fault lines running somewhere between Memphis and going past St. Louis up into Illinois, known as the New Madrid Seismic System. And when New Madrid um, in the early 1800s had a series of quakes, uh, a couple in December, then one into January and another in February, smaller aftershocks, it actually split the country along the Mississippi River, causing the river to flow backwards. Now, what I wrote in New Madrid Earthquake, the novel, was what would happen if that occurred today? What would the impact be not only on localized areas like Memphis and St. Louis, but think about all of the bridges that span the Mississippi. There's not that many. The interstates across, I think there's seven major bridges, bridges, all of which would be destroyed because of the shaking of the earth, which would have a profound impact on uh, the nation's commerce. Oh, absolutely. And uh, in addition to Arc Storm, a couple others of your trilogy novels are coming out, uh, Fractured and Mammoth. Well, 
Art, I followed the science, and with ArcStorm, I studied what geologists were were writing and saying as to what would happen if that major flood event occurred today, and how that would impact the what's underneath the ground. And when you start inserting large amounts of water, and the weight of a lake that would be created by the arc storm is 22 times the size of the Mississippi River, then you're going to have an impact on the seismic zones throughout California, and it's the most seismic active you know, state in our country and, and probably in the world. And so I took it a step further. I took the other big one, as scientists called it, created the massive lake, and then I showed in the book Fractured, which came out back in July, what would happen to these seismic zones after it's been holding the weight of this newly created lake and all of the water injected into the, the, the fault lines? And it triggered a series of, of earthquakes that started down in L.A. near San Bernardino and included the Garlock Fault and Ridgecrest at the lower end of the Central Valley. And then, of course, San Andreas got involved because earthquakes can trigger one another, even if they're not in the same fault line fault zone, one massive quake in San Bernardino can certainly trigger quakes on the San Andreas Fault because of their close proximity to one, one another. And so Fractured takes the, the series of catastrophes a step further. After the arc storm created the lake, Fractured then drained the lake because of the, the, the earthquake activity across California. And then the third uh, book in the in the threesome called Mammoth, which comes out this coming Thursday, uh, just a few days from now, is a result of all of the quake activity that triggers the eruption of a volcano um, in Mammoth Lakes, California. It was a beautiful place, pristine, gorgeous mountain. People love to ski there, not having any idea that they're sitting on top of a of a caldera called the Long Valley Caldera that has the potential to be as deadly as Yellowstone. And Yellowstone is overdue for an eruption, isn't it? It, it is. You know, it's, it's a funny thing about timing. Uh, they go back to the geologic record and, and, and do all of their studies and say, well, Yellowstone uh, usually uh, you know, does something violent every 700,000 years, and it's been longer than that now. Um, and what I always joke, laugh about in this, you know, the scientists that I talk to and by email and a couple of conversations will tell me, you know, the, the first thing that they will say is, well, you know, yes, this is a very dangerous, you know, potential for America and the world, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. But then you, you go to them and you say, well, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but how do you know this? You don't know because that. Could happen any time. Yeah, if you can't predict it, how can you assure me it's not going to happen anytime soon? Which is why I write these novels. I want people to understand that what you may hear from the media or you might hear from government officials isn't necessarily what could happen. And and so when you look at something as catastrophic as a, a supervolcano eruption, it could happen without warning, and it would certainly be devastating to the planet. Bobby, we'll take a break as we're coming up to the top of the hour, and we will take phone calls with you next hour about the possibilities of mass extinctions and 
destruction to humanity. So jump aboard and uh, call Bobby Eckhart, and we will be back in a moment with calls with him on Coast to Coast AM. 